Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's May 2023. During its short but prolific life, the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas wrote three opinions in civil cases involving slavery. Each opinion offers a strong example of what is called historic irony, the fresh and uncomfortable perspective gained only from hindsight. On the surface, each opinion is a capable analysis of some basic idea in commercial law. But while giving that analysis, each opinion also ignores how that basic concept is not compatible with the institution of slavery. This episode, drawing from an article that I recently published in the Journal of the Texas Supreme Court Historical Society, as well as a shorter episode from the first year of this podcast, reviews those three opinions to consider how we can avoid similar missteps today. Heavily in debt and surrounded by unfriendly neighbors, the Republic of Texas was in dire straits during the early 1840s. By 1845, it will give up independence entirely and become the 28th state of the United States. But despite the Republic's many challenges, it had a reasonably functional court system. Each county had a trial court with a right of appeal to a Supreme Court, and more or less consistently, Five justices sat for each yearly term of that Supreme Court, presided over during much of its tenure by the legendary John Hempel, often called the John Marshall of Texas for his insightful opinions about property law of the time. The court's opinions are published in a single volume titled Dallum's Decisions, named for the court's reporter, George Dallum. In this episode, I examine three cases of that court that touch in some way upon slavery. In hindsight, they are extraordinarily ironic. Each of them voids a slave-related conveyance as unfair, while never acknowledging the far greater unfairness of slavery itself. The first of the three cases is Hall v. Phelps. This case arose from what the Supreme Court called the Distracted State of Texas from 1832 to 1835 and the revolution that occurred during that time. Facts are as follows. James Phelps moved to Texas in 1824 as a colonist. He received a land grant from the Mexican government, and he returned to the United States to visit family in 1831. Warren Hall, presumably a neighbor of Phelps, then invaded Phelps's property. And in the words of the court, With violence and without any right or authority, expelled the overseer and the slaves from the dwelling and tenements they occupied, driving them to some distant huts on the land, and later in like manner drove them wholly from the land, putting out of the enclosures the household furniture, etc., leaving the same to be wasted and destroyed, and took entire possession of the dwelling, tenements, and premises, and continued with force to occupy until March following. When Phelps returned from his trip to the United States, Warren refused to return Phelps' land to him until, as the court said, after an agreement was extorted from him to convey a thousand acres in consideration of being restored to possession of the residue. Understandably, Phelps was unhappy with this situation. After he reestablished his household on his land, Phelps sued Warren to invalidate the thousand-acre deed. Phelps won in the Brazoria County Trial Court, and Hall appealed to the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas. Undeterred by the awkward fact that his client had in fact stolen Phelps's land by force of arms, Hall's counsel made four arguments to the Supreme Court. Number one, the deed had been lost and thus could not be voided. Number two, the jury should have been instructed on a legal principle about 
compromise of a disputed right. And number three, Phelps's suit was barred by the statute of limitations. Number four, the party's performance was a waiver of any irregularities with the deed. The Supreme Court ruled for Phelps. In colorful language, the court faulted Hall for abusing Phelps's trust. It said the following, Hall, availing of the temporary absence of Phelps and his wife on a visit to their child, in the spirit and with the hand of rapacity, took possession of the domicile and soil which the unsuspecting and confiding Phelps had acquired by the enterprise and privations of years, and trusted would be kept inviolate to receive him on his return. With that factual background, the court concluded as a matter of law that the deed to Hall was invalid, here again in the court's own language, let it not be imagined that we will descend into the detail of the continued outrage inflicted. It will be enough to remark that he, in his own audacious words, reigned sole possessor of the usurped manor and premises, affecting all the power and vaunted hospitality of a successful marauder of the Dark Ages, until the deed was signed and delivered, and thereafter, until it pleased him to depart! Exclamation mark. Similar rhetoric appears throughout the opinion's discussion of the other specific legal issues. Now, a modern court would surely reach the same conclusion. Stealing your neighbor's house continues to be unlawful. But a modern court would also notice the plight of the, quote, dispossessed slaves who appear at the start of the opinion. Of course, the slaves only appear in this story because the slave trade had created a distracted state, to again use the language of the court, in their homeland, allowing them or their ancestors to be kidnapped and sold into slavery. The court correctly faulted Hall for acting like a successful marauder of the Dark Ages, but it simply did not blink at the situation of others who had also been dispossessed by force and by violence. The second case is Hill versus McDermott. And even by the clerical standards of 1841, the court record in Hill v. McDermott is sparse. The Supreme Court observed, The record is obviously incomplete. It is not certified by the judge, nor does it otherwise appear that these were all the facts proved. Having made that observation, these are the facts recorded by Dallum's decisions. Whitfield Sledge owned two slaves, a woman named Priscilla and her daughter Sylvia. The opinion gave no other names for them. In 1834, Sledge borrowed money from John Chafin, pledging those two slaves as the security for the loan. Sledge died in 1835. Then in the spring of 1837, Chafin with force took both slaves out of the possession of Sledge's widow and carried them away. A witness, who the opinion identifies only as the deponent Tonelli, testified that Sledge's widow owned the slaves at that time. In the same vein as Hall, the Supreme Court vaulted Chafin for his violent conduct, but the court's specific holding is that the loan by Chafin to Sledge was usurious. Specifically, in the language of the court, it attempted on its face to secure 12.5% interest per annum and 5% per month, both illegal and usurious exactions. Chafin thus, and again the court's language, acquired no right under the deed because of its turpitude, as it was not such as would have been enforced either in the ordinary mode by judicial suit or by the award of executive process. Fair enough. But if the loan was unenforceable because the bargain between Sledge and Chafin was unfair, what about the relationship between the Sledges and their slaves? It is ironic for the Supreme Court to hold that Chafin overreached by gouging Sledge on interest when Sylvia and Priscilla had no opportunity at all 
to negotiate with the sledges. The third case is Walker versus McNeils. The case arose because family members did not get along. Specifically, D.R. and E.B. Walker sued J.G. McNeil and R.M. Calder, initials were a thing back then, after the Walkers conveyed, quote, certain lands and slaves to them. The Walkers claimed that they had made the conveyance under duress and sought to have the conveyance set aside. The case was tried to a jury. The court's charge defined duress as being, quote, of two kinds, duress of imprisonment, where the person is confined, and duress of threats, where the act of violence is declared or hanging over the party. The court further explained, This fear must be well-grounded, not mere conjecture or suspicion of danger, such as a timid mind might conjure up in a moment of alarm. The fear of losing one's property is no duress, because the injury may be repaired by damages, but no adequate atonement can be made for the loss of life or limb or liberty or ignominious punishment. So instructed by the trial court, the jury found no duress. The Walkers appealed on the ground that the judge had not stated the law broadly enough, and they had asked for this additional instruction. When a party is subjected to undue influence of extreme terror or threats or apprehensions short of duress and executes a deed under such circumstances, it is void. Also, that a deed made under such circumstances of extreme necessity and distress of the party, although not accompanied by any direct restraint or duress, is void. The Supreme Court agreed with the Walkers. Lacking its own precedent, it relied on Joseph Story's Commentaries on Equity Jurisprudence and held, Nowhere do we find that the threats of violence, which are the inducement to a particular act, must be made at the very time and place of the execution of that act. Rather, said the Supreme Court, it is for the jury to say when those threats and circumstances are proven, whether they are sufficient to induce such fear as might move a man of ordinary firmness to the execution of his deed. The Supreme Court thus reversed and it remanded for a new trial. The holding is ironic in two ways. Most obviously, slavery by definition is a loss of liberty. And it was enforced by means that these justices would surely have seen as ignominious punishments had Walker inflicted one upon McNeil's. More specifically, the Supreme Court's precise holding that duress can arise without immediate threat goes directly to the pervasiveness of slavery that made it such a lasting institution in the southern states. The Supreme Court acknowledged neither of these potential applications of the doctrine that otherwise very carefully defined and applied. Now that I've laid out the facts and holdings of these three cases, I turn to the next logical question. Could these cases have turned out differently? Of course, history does not record whether any judges in these cases even noticed the incongruity between their holdings and the institution of slavery, and if a justice had noticed, many influences would have deterred him from going further, personal economic interests, peer pressure, even the potential threat of violence. Perhaps most powerfully, a judge's own cognitive bias, the human tendency to cling to ideas even when confronted with strong evidence against them, would have also discouraged him from action. After a lifetime in a culture where slavery was legal and accepted, a natural response to a nagging doubt about it would be to simply ignore it or to kick it down the road to examine another day. That said, courts have a significant built-in check on cognitive bias and that is that judges don't decide what cases are filed. A person who wants the courts to hear an issue only needs to pay a filing fee if that issue arises in a justiciable case or controversy. 
That leads to a related question. Could someone involved in this litigation have forced the court to at least confront, if not squarely address, the glaring problem that a contract to sell a slave necessarily involves terror or threats or apprehensions, the essence of duress as defined by this court? Here again, the likely answer is no, because of two other checks on judicial power, both very much in place at the time of these cases. The first is the concept of standing, which limits who can bring a particular issue before a court. The slaves lacked standing to say anything to a court then, as the United States Supreme Court would awkwardly hold just a few years later in Dred Scott, a slave could not be a citizen of the state of Missouri within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States and consequently was not entitled to sue in its courts. Further illustrating the point, the slaves in these cases not just lacked standing, they lacked personhood. In Hill, for example, the court quoted a legal principle that applied, quote, if the thing pledged had been sold by the pledgeor. In that case, though, those things were in fact the two slaves named Priscilla and Sylvia. The other such doctrine that constrains judicial power is precedent. Both the Texas and the United States Supreme Courts have recently confirmed that the question of when to overrule precedent is central to how a common law system operates. The Republic of Texas Supreme Court very much saw itself as part of that tradition. In another case of the time, Carr v. Wellborn, the court said, Organized as our system is on the principles of the common law, both reason and prudence should lead us to adopt decisions of courts whose system is the same, especially when supported by the authority of reason and the dignity of names eminent for their proficiency in science and wisdom and their elucidation of the principles of the common law. We should follow in the beaten track, guided by the lights which they have shed to conclusions correct in principle, guarded by precedent, and just in their effects. As precedent on the substantive issues they addressed, the holdings of these three cases remain viable long after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. Hill v. McDermott was never cited again by a Texas court, but Hall v. Phelps was reviewed at length by the modern-day Texas Supreme Court in 2015 as part of a comprehensive study in an opinion of the elements of the tort of trespass. And Walker v. McNeil's was cited well into the 20th century for its definition of duress, and if you study today's pattern jury charge and its form instruction about duress for use in modern civil trials, you'll find that it is materially similar to what Walker v. McNeil's had to say. These observations about how courts work help explain why the end of slavery did not come from the courts, but from Congress and a substantial majority of states after the Civil War. Even if a would-be litigant had wanted to get the attention of a judge in these cases, rules about standing and stare decisis would have kept those efforts from proceeding very far. Institutionally, courts operate with blinders that keep them focused on specific disputes and the rules that govern them, rather than the broader structural issues in society that produce those disputes and bring them to the courts. When Hannah Arendt watched the trial of Adolf Eichmann, she talked about the banality of evil. She said, The trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were like him, and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are, terribly and terrifyingly normal. If you asked the judges who decided these three cases what they were about, they would have called them 
contract cases, or secured credit cases, and they would characterize them as turning on specific legal questions of commercial law, should a conveyance be set aside if duress occurs. Much of their legal analysis is straightforward and with some updating and citation to modern authority would not be out of place in courts today. But the cases were also about slavery. And by looking at how casually these well-intentioned and hard-working judges discuss slavery, we can gain some insight about what courts do well and what they do not do well. Hopefully those insights can help us avoid similar oversights and missed opportunities in our own time. If you like this episode, I encourage you to join other satisfied listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.